forgiveness you have extended to us of Jesus on the cross. A new life that is, our, that is ours through his resurrection from the dead on the third day. Help us, Lord, to walk in this new life through the power of your Holy Spirit as he has made, made now, now made in his home in us who will belong to you. Give us redeemed ears with which you, to hear your word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Oh, well, that was people. Good morning. Good morning. Yay. The Bible is God's letter to us. It contains everything we believe about God, his son, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and even us as human beings. It underpins how we function as a church community and how we live our lives as individuals. This is Mothering Sunday, and I didn't realize that whenever I was asked originally. But the Bible does have a lot to say about parenthood. And for those of you who are mothers, my prayer over recent weeks has been that you would be like the mother of Proverbs 31 and 28. And that is that at some stage in the future, it would be true of you that your children rise up and call you blessed. In other words, that they would realize how fortunate they are to have you as a mum. Because of your love and the way you've lived your life before them and what you have taught them. So be blessed this morning, those of you who are mothers. Anyway, the reading this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there are copies on the windowsills and you're welcome to take a copy home if you don't have one of your own. Uh, Nehemiah 13, there are two things just there are four prayers that I call bullet prayers from Nehemiah to God. And there are two characters, Tobias and um, Zambalat, both of whom opposed the Jews building the walls of Jerusalem. So watch out for them. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? 
and I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zechor, son of Mathaniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not our fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a living word. And we just pray now for Andrew as he comes, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would so energize him 
that he would take your word and just communicate it to us in a way that is from yourself. And for us, as we listen and as we think through what he tells us, we pray that you would stir our hearts and give us ears that will listen to what the Spirit has to say through him, because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. It was really encouraging. Barbara's like nicking all the points from my sermon. <laughs> um, before, we, um, before we get into the passage this morning, just a quick word about the Belong membership class coming up next Sunday. Um, uh, I just want to mention that briefly and encourage you to consider coming along to that. Like uh, Lauren said, it's not a com- if you come to that thing, you're not committing to membership, but it's just explore membership. And I just want to speak onto that for a minute because sometimes with commitment, we speak about, thank you, Healy, we speak about that as like a bad word, like a negative thing, like commitment's a bad thing. Um, but I think we need to reclaim that um, and redeem it for what it actually is. The fact that we're here, to, here is because God has committed to us through Jesus. Um, so I just wanted to explain two reasons why we practice membership. One is biblical and one is contextual. Um, biblically, uh, you, you might say, well, there's no evidence for membership in the Bible. <clears throat> I actually don't think that's true. Uh, even if it were true, there are lots of things in the, not in the Bible that we practice that are, we hold to be good and true. No one tells us to get married in church. No one tells us to get married with a, with a, with a minister there, but we practice that. No one tells us to have a kids ministry. We do that. Uh, no one tells us to have Christian church funerals, but we do these things even though they're not in the Bible. But I do think that there is evidence of membership in the Bible. I think that it's very clear uh, when it comes to things like church discipline, there's a clear sense of, of who is in and who is not in that body committed to that membership. I think that's very clear. Um, I think that there are, there are orders given to, to feed the widows and, and to feed uh, particularly the widows and the poor um, and the orphans. And, and, and there's actual historical evidence outside the Bible that shows us that the early churches as early as the first century and before that uh, had, um, not before that because there was no church before the first century, you understand what I'm saying, um, in the first century there's evidence they had clear lists of, of who, was, who, who was to be fed, who was to be provided for, which, which um, suggests that they had lists of who, who was part of their number. Paul then also tells us in 1 Corinthians that, that we are members of one another. So I think that the strong uh, biblical evidence for uh, uh, reasons for membership uh, and, and where that kind of marries to where we're at here in, the, in, in 2023 in Belfast is that contextually we live in a, both a time and a place that is so non-committal, <laughs> like, like non-committal. Um, mar- marriage is on the decline, which is a sign of an indication that, that commitment is on the decline. Uh, but but in, in this non-committal kind of attitude has crept into even the church. So we can, you've heard of people church hopping, haven't you? Maybe you've even done that yourself. I have in the past as well. Um, that you can kind of go to one church and if you don't like the way James sings a song, of course we all do because he's perfect um, in his singing. Um, but, uh, but if you don't like the music, you can just find a, a church that does suit you. Or if you don't like the teaching, you can go to find a church that does suit you. And maybe you stick around for a wee while and you don't like that. And, or maybe you come into some conflict with a brother or sister in the church and you go, well, I'm out. Um, and, and actually what we want to do is we, we want to stand against that uh, in our context and say, no, we're going to be counterculture and we're going to commit to one another as brothers and sisters. Um, 
This doesn't mean that you have to actually, it doesn't mean that you're, 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 you have to be fully on board with every single doctrine in our church, but it means that we commit to working through these things and, 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 and pursuing Jesus together in that committed way. So I really, if you've been coming for a while and you're not a member, I encourage you to just come along on Sunday and just find out what it's all about um, and, and, and find out then what actual full membership of our church means and it's more than just being part of a missional community and more than just um, uh, coming on to our gathering on Sunday so I encourage you to think about that and then maybe just this week sign up for our membership next Sunday and we're going to have food at that as well so that's always an incentive even if you just want free food <laughs> um, let me pray for us and then we'll get into Nehemiah 13 uh, Father thank you for your word Thank you for Barbara for reading it for us so clearly and joyfully and, and convincingly, Lord. We just pray that you would, by your spirit now, work in our hearts. Uh, convict us where we need convicted. Uh, show us where we need you to, um, we need you to work. Allow, us, allow you to do that. Uh, make us allow you to do that work. Um, apply this passage to our hearts now for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well done, everybody. We're at the end of Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah. It's been a long time. We've been in this book since 2022. Um, not right? Yes, we have. And we've taken some breaks in between for Advent and Christmas and so on. And here we are at the very last chapter. So well done. Um, and we've seen the people come in this journey from they've been in, in captivity and exile in Babylon and then Persia as it, the, it, the, the empire kind of changed hands halfway through. Uh, and then we saw them come back, obeying God. Zerubbabel led, led them back uh, to, to rebuild firstly the temple and then they rebuild the city walls and, and they started to remember and restore their identity as God's people uh, and allowed God to do this renewing work in them by applying his law for his good and, and their joy into their hearts. And then we get to chapter 13. And it's a kind of a strange one, isn't it? I heard uh, one pastor describing this, a friend of mine actually describing this uh, chapter as like when you see, it's kind of like when you're in the supermarket and you see a parent discipline their child in public and it's kind of awkward and you don't know what to do. Should you look at it? Should you applaud them? Should you just turn your back? Should you intervene? Um, and I, it made me think of when I was wee and you remember you did some. My mom used to take me to the co-op every week when she was doing the shopping, and I used to go along all the fragile and all the cellophane, poke holes in every single one. Like, I don't know why. <laughs> and to the point where she had to like, you know, sometimes it was uh, discipline there in the aisle. Sometimes she'd say the worst words ever, wait till we get home. That was the, the worst thing, because then the dread seeps in, and you're like, oh my goodness, hope she forgets by the time we get home. But in Nehemiah 13, there is no wait till we get home. He sees it and he deals with it. And, and, when, you, and when you read the, uh, I'm going to lay hands on you, I'm pulling out your hair, I'm beating them, you're kind of thinking, is this okay? Like, should we intervene? Should I look at this? Is, this? is this okay? What's going on? Well, last week when we left off, things seemed to be going pretty well, weren't they? We had seen in, in chapters 8, 9, and 10 that they've confessed their sin, they've recommitted, they've rededicated their lives to God, and then in 11 and 12, they, they're actually gathered, they're, they're marching around the walls singing praises so that the, the sound of the praise was heard far away. And you kind of think, wow, this is, this is going really good. But then, in the start of chapter 13, we learn that Nehemiah has been called back to Babylon. Remember, he's still employed by the king. And he has to go back to Babylon. We don't know how long he's there, but it's certainly been a number of years. Some people think it was about 12 to 15 years he's been gone. And when he comes in, when he comes in, when he comes back, the scene he walks in on 
is not the scene that he left. I had a, a French teacher in school, and anytime he, I don't know why it was him, uh, but anytime he left the room, even for a minute, it would just be descend into chaos, like the last days of Rome, like stuff on fire, stuff being thrown, and he would come back in and be like, what on earth is going on? This is what's happening to Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah quickly realizes that all the things that they had committed to a few chapters earlier have been forgotten, and they've completely neglected their worship of God. And so Nehemiah is angry, and he acts quickly and decisively. He doesn't say, wait till we get home. He's saying, I'm acting now. And this chapter reveals to us the need for God to persistently intervene in our lives and continually renew our hearts. And ultimately, it points us to the hope that we have in Jesus and, and the ongoing uh, need we have for Jesus to make us new. Because the truth is, we can't do it on our own. And so here's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see that we have a persistent need for God's ongoing renewal work in our hearts. We have a persistent need for God's ongoing renewal work in our hearts. And the first part that we see of this is that opposition is persistent. Our op opposition is persistent. In verses 4 to 9, I think they're on the screen there. Uh, I'm going to actually read a part of this. Um, uh, let's, let's read verses 4 to 9 just so we get a picture of what's going on. He says, it says, now before this... Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, that's the temple that has just been newly built, by the way, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain and wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, the gatekeepers, and the contrib contributions for the priests." Now, that name Tobiah, as, as, as Barbara's already pointed out, that should be familiar to us because back in chapters 4 to 6, we saw that Tobiah is the one who was leading the opposition to this renewing work. He's like God's enemy number one. He had even plotted to, to murder Nehemiah. This is like the, the, the moment in the, in the movie when you think that the bad guy's gone and he, and he comes back. Like in Harry Potter, remember in Harry Potter, whenever they finally realize that Voldemort's back, he's back. This is what's happening. You're like, what is this guy doing here again? I just want to point out that we have a real and personal enemy and his opposition to God's renewal work in our hearts is persistent. We have a real enemy. He wants to stop God renewing our hearts. And that will come time and time again. We need to realize that there will always be opposition to God's renewal work. The enemy's going to keep coming back and back and back, attacking you time and time again, because he knows that he can't attack Jesus anymore. And so he attacks us. And you see what had happened here. We'll just leave those verses on the screen for a minute. You see what happened here. You see, the people had neglected faithful worship. What happened was they had stopped bringing the things necessary for worship into the temple. They'd stopped bringing the, the tithes of grain and, and the first fruits and, and all the materials necessary for worship. And this lack of worship had led an empty room in the temple. And it didn't take long for that empty room to be filled by God's enemy. Church, a, a lack of humble worship of God had allowed the enemy of God to move in. If we neglect worship of God, of regularly offering our lives in worship to God, 
If we, if we neglect serving him, it will leave space for our enemy who, who persistently attacks us to move in. He will find any empty space he can and, and he will set up residence there. The space that is vacated by worship will be filled. You see, this room in the temple was a space that was supposed to be used for worship and service, but instead it has been filled with the enemy of God's people. And the lesson for us is, don't leave room in your heart for the enemy to take up residence. If we aren't filling our lives with worship of God and service to him, then then, then the enemy will move in. He doesn't wait to be invited. He just sneaks his way in and sets up shop. And of course, Nehemiah is angry because this matters, you see. This matters. I'm saying matters, Liam, because I was in Balmain yesterday. Dropped my T's again. This matters because the building of the wall was never about the wall in itself. The building of the temple was never about having the temple as a building. It was always about right worship of God. It was always about bringing the people back into relationship with God. It was about the worship and honor and glory of God. And so Nehemiah acts, and he acts out of anger. And and he does the right thing, doesn't he? He takes Tobiah. He he just, he goes into his apartment and just clears all the furniture, throws it out the window. You know those scenes in a movie where like the angry, uh, you know, partner who's been cheated on is like throwing stuff out. That's what's happened. He goes and he clears it out. Don't think that the emotion of anger is always a wrong or a bad thing. Think of Jesus in the temple. He does exactly what Nehemiah does here. They had defiled his father's house. They defiled the place of God's worship. And so Jesus goes in and he throws them all out. And why we struggle with this is because we tend to get angry about the wrong things. And that's sin, right? We get angry when our pride is damaged. That's a big one for me. Or when our comfort is threatened. We get, we get angry when we feel attacked. But Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. That means get angry about the things that God is angry about. And I wonder, when, the, when is the last time we did something like this? When you did a Nehemiah on your own heart. When you got angry about the sin in your life. When you got angry with the enemy because he's constantly attacking you. Listen, as, as we consider this persistence of opposition... In our lives, we need to know that it's okay. In fact, it's good to hate sin. It's okay to hate Satan. It's good to hate Satan because he 100% hates you. But he, He's smart, you see, and he weasels his way in, and, and he, he wants to keep us angry at the wrong things. He wants to keep us distracted and sinning by throwing up things that he knows will make you sinfully angry. That's me driving a car. Every single time I sit behind the wheel of a car, He throws somebody in my lane that he knows I'll get unrighteously angry at. He will do everything in his power to keep you from making room in your life for Jesus. To keep you off mission for Jesus. And he does this most often by putting things in your life that that are your biggest triggers to make you angry at the wrong things. We need to be like Nehemiah. We need to throw him out. We need to tell him to get lost. We need to tell him that this house belongs to the Holy Spirit and not to him. And what I find most troubling about this when I was reading this this week is that what the Israelites are doing in this chapter is exactly the same pattern that's in our lives. 
they had stopped surrendering to God and worship, and the enemy had moved in and taken up residence. This is precisely what happens to us. Maybe not our whole lives, but in the areas that we don't want to surrender to God. You know, the parts of the Bible's teaching that we find most difficult to believe and put into practice, whatever that may be for you, whether it's about money or gender or sexuality or any of these things, the things that we know that we should give up to God and worship but find it hardest to do, these are the areas where Satan will move in and set up shop. And I wonder, is it possible for some of us that, that, that these areas, that this has happened in these areas of our lives and we've just come to accept it? That it's totally possible to live with the opposition in your life, especially in the areas that we already don't want to surrender to God, and we just, we just come to live with it, and we think, well, this is just how it is. I watched a video online this week of a, of a turtle, a sea turtle, and it had a piece of plastic wrapped around it, and, and its shell had become all deformed and bent. And this is kind of what we do sometimes. We just kind of get used to, like, I'm just going to live with that. It's uncomfortable, and it's not healthy. But we just go, well, that's just the way it is. But it doesn't have to be this way. We can surrender to God and worship. We can kick Satan out. We can make room for Jesus to move in. And Ephesians 6, if you ever read that passage, the armor of God, he says, be strong in the Lord. Now, we're not told to try and kick Satan out in our own strength. We're told to be strong in the Lord. If you've been bought with the blood of Jesus, be strong. Kick Satan out. The scheming is persistent. The opposition to the God's renewal work in our hearts is persistent. But our enemy has been defeated. So we can just say, well, you, you know, you've been defeated. Be strong in the Lord. I wonder what areas of our lives that, that see, we've allowed Satan to move in by, by not surrendering to God. We've left an empty room and he's moved in. And it's time to just kick him out, surrender to God. The opposition is persistent, but, but what we see in this chapter is that it's not just an external thing. Our struggle with sin is persistent also. We have an ongoing internal struggle um, in our hearts, and it's persistent. We have persistent external opposition, but the internal struggle is also persistent and continual, isn't it? Remember back in chapter 10, the people made a covenant to come back to God and obey his laws. Remember we talked about they had their drawn a line in the sand moment. From that day on, they were, they were done with running away from God. They were going to keep their side of the covenant. Remember, they saw their sin and they made an oath to God. And, and they were no longer going to uh, marry people from other nations. They were, no, no, they were going to start obeying the Sabbath. And they were going to restore proper temple worship. Now, what I find interesting is those three things that they committed to do, it's exactly the things they have given up on here. Exactly the things they're failing to do. Look at verse 10. Nehemiah also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had, fl had fled each to his field. See, they had pledged not to ne neglect the worship of the temple, but apparently the temple worship has been so neglected that the Levites, who are the priests, and, and, the, and the singers uh, have had to go out and get jobs in the field. They've had to go back to farming because there's no worship happening, so they can't be supported. The people have stopped worshiping God, and so the pastors and staff and the worship team have had to just go and find jobs anywhere else. 
Look at verse 15. In those days I saw Judah, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So they had pledged previously to rest on God's provision by keeping the Sabbath and, and now they've totally gone back in this and are working and trading when they should have been resting on God's work. It's like us not resting on the finished work of Jesus and and trying to work for our own salvation. Look at verses 23 and 24. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. These are all ancient enemies of God's people, by the way. They have some history. And half of their children spoke, spoke the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now, we covered this before. This is not a, ra- a racial thing. It's a holiness thing. They've rejected God's law. And now there's a whole generation of children who don't know the story of God. A whole generation in the time Nehemiah has been away that, that, can't, that can't, couldn't tell them how God had brought them out of Egypt. How God had kept them safe through the wilderness. How God had brought them into the promised land. And in total, it just seems like they have short-term memories for the faithfulness of God. I wonder how is it they, uh, how they had been through all they had been through, building the temple, building the wall, through all the opposition, all the attacks they've had, and seen God being faithful time and time again. How had they gone through all of this and still forgotten what God had done? Look at Nehemiah's response in verses 25 to 27. I confronted them and I cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Now listen, let me be really clear. This is a a, a descriptive passage, not prescriptive. In other words, it's describing something that happened, not something that we should do. So so confront each other's sin. Yes, do that. That's good. But probably don't pull each each other's hair or uh, beat people. Although sometimes you feel like it. and he, it goes on, he, he does this, and he made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, on account, uh, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign, foreign women? He had, Solomon was, was such a womanizer, he, he abused his power. He had 700 wives and 700 concubines. Nehemiah said, listen, have we not seen this happening before? Are you not going to learn from your mistakes? And what we can learn from this is it's not that we should beat people, but it's the weight with which Nehemiah is zealous for the honor and glory of God. He's extremely serious about the holiness and worship of the people. He's saying, listen, remember how Solomon went down this path. It didn't work out for him, did it? Remember the mistakes of the past and don't be condemned to repeat them. This is what we do, isn't it? Our sin is persistent. We, th- we think, man, these guys, read this here. These guys had short, short-term memories. We have short-term memories for the faithfulness of God, don't we? Like goldfish. 
Well, he did for me yesterday. I forget it tomorrow, today. <laughs> you know that thing when you're driving down the road and you suddenly can't remember the last five miles? <laughs> you're like, how on earth did I get here? You kind of wake up and you go, what happened? But that's what happens when we're not on guard against the persistent sin in our own hearts. We wake up and we think, how have I got here again? I remember, I remember five miles down the road drawing the line in the sand. God, I said to you, I wasn't going to do this anymore. And yet here I am again. Church, we need to be on our guard. Because the, the temptation and the lure of sin is it's just always there. It's always present in our own hearts. The temptation to not pursue holiness to work for our salvation, to neglect the church, to be selfish with our money. These things have always been there. There's nothing new under the sun. And we all feel this, don't we? The lure of not resting on the finished work of Jesus is powerful. It's so easy to get stuck in a cycle of legalism and working for God's approval or for the approval of others. The lure of, of not honoring the church is strong. It's easy to give up on being part of a missional community and not loving each other well, not serving each other well. Trust me, I know. To, you think you can just dip in and out of church. The lure of not living generously is strong. It's easy to let your guard down and become selfish. I work hard for this money. Why should I give it away? Or, you know what? It's really tight at the minute. With the, with, I was going to say the credit crunch, but that was 20 years ago. I mean, with the, I mean the, the, the cost of living crisis, and we can barely make ends meet as it is, so, so why should I? Uh, I just don't think I could give anything. In those ways, and in a million other ways, we find these temptations so alluring, and we need to be on our guard against the persistence of our internal struggle. It is constant. And if we don't keep our guard up, if we're not strong in the Lord, we will fall time and time again. Colossians 3 verse 5 says, put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death what is earthly in you. You see, there, uh, this is a struggle. One of the Puritans, John Owen, used to talk about stand on the, the neck of sin until it's dead. You might think, oh, that's old school talking about sin. But man, this is real. And you know it's real because you felt it and you live it. So do I. We have this continual need to have the presence of Jesus in our lives, surrender our lives to him. Otherwise, the enemy is going to fill that space. And there's nothing that drives sin out of your life better than worship. Listen, you're my brothers and sisters, and I love you. And just as Nehemiah was pleading with the people to put God at the center of their lives, I'm pleading with us as a family to put God at the center of our lives. See, the Old Testament People were called by God to be a light to the nations. That's what God had called them to, to, to represent God and to be a blessing to the nations around them. And just like them, we, the church, God's people now, we're called to do the same, to be a light for all people, to show them the goodness of, and glory of God, to, to, to warn them of God's wrath, uh, to, to be a blessing to our friends and neighbors by, by, by drawing them into the goodness of Jesus. And we can't do this if God isn't at the center of our lives. You ever think, oh, I wonder why I'm not very good at telling people about Jesus. Well, maybe it's because Jesus isn't the center of your life. And we need to put away sin. We need to clear out that stuff that has taken residence. 
We need to pursue holiness and righteousness by living lives of worship to God. And it's through this that we can fulfill the calling that He has given us. Now, it's very difficult to convince somebody that a healthy diet and exercise is good for you if all you do is eat buns and McDonald's and don't get off the sofa, right? Okay, so that's why I'm not telling any of you that healthy exercise and diet is good for you because I'd be a hypocrite. But in the same way, it's, it's really difficult to show people the goodness and grace of Jesus if we're not living in the goodness and grace of Jesus. And listen, sometimes we, sometimes in our, uh, I don't want to blame everything on social media, but then we are living in the social media era. And, and, and we get, kind of get caught up with this idea that our job is to fix culture. So we get stuck on these hot button topics. We can find ourselves consumed by the big sins of the world put it in inverted commas, like marriage and sexuality and gender. And it's all too easy to do this without thinking on ourselves. We can focus on the sin out there and, and not think on the sin in here. And I wonder what it would look like for us to be a people who were deeply repentant of the own sin in our hearts. To live humbly, recognizing that we are sinful, that we have abandoned God's good design for us, and, and just then live daily depending on His grace. And what would that look like? And I'm not saying that we don't call stuff out. Of course we do. I'm not saying that when we're confronted with these things in conversations that we don't speak God's truth into them. Of course we do that. That is, in fact, how we, in part, be a light to those around us. But we do this humbly, lovingly. And from a posture of, first and foremost... Before I call out anything else, I'm a sinner. I'm just daily relying on Jesus' grace. That's it. And our persistent and continual need for God's renewal should be the, the posture of our lives. Serving Him to be conformed to His image. Daily asking Jesus to renew us. Simply praying, Jesus, would you change me, please? There's a thousand areas of my life and my heart that I just can't seem to change, and I hate it. Would you change me, please? Would you create in me a hunger for holiness, a hunger for righteousness? And we keep trying and trying to change ourselves, or we keep commenting on the stuff that's happening out there, and we, and we just forget, can we simply rely on the grace and goodness of Jesus? Part of our vision statement that, that we share every Sunday is joining God in the renewal of all things. And we believe that God is doing that renewing work in the world. That's what he's doing through, in our streets and in our communities. But that renewing work begins in us. And then out of that, we can be a people eager and willing to hold out the Jesus who has changed us, who has changed my life, and allow him to speak into the culture, to share uh, not our faith, but a person. I, I, this, this week I met with someone who, who wasn't a believer, just he, he, had some, he had lots of questions about, about Jesus. And I started by saying, listen, I don't want to talk about my faith. I want to talk to you about a person. Because actually my faith isn't all that good. <laughs> we want to share the person who has, has changed us and say, I know the one who is able to change you and heal you, even the parts of your life that you think aren't possible to change or heal, that you didn't even realize needed healed or changed. And this is when we will start to see our city change, to see our friends and neighbors and colleagues transformed. This is when we will truly join God in the renewal of our streets, our city, and the world. When we deal with that persistent sin 
in our own hearts by just daily relying on God's grace and God's goodness. Our opposition is persistent. Our own sin is persistent. And here's our final point. God's renewing work is persistent. I should probably put in there, God's renewing work is even more persistent. See, it's funny. I I love that we just kind of teach through books of the Bible um, because you get to go deep. But Nehemiah is a funny one because it ends with an anticlimax, doesn't it? It doesn't end like the Gospels with the resurrection or the ascension. It ends with a sense of failure. See, they, they, they got to the point where, where, where you're, you're kind of thinking, oh, we can do this. Uh, they commit to living for God, and they're walking around the walls singing praise, and they're, they're being a light to the nations because they all hear them praising God. And, and then you're thinking, well, maybe they've arrived. Maybe, maybe they've got it. Maybe this is it. And then we're left. Uh, then we see it just kind of falls off a cliff. It just takes a nosedive. And we're left thinking, where, why is this such a failure? This is why. We call this series Unfinished Hope. Because you're left thinking, where is the hope? The whole way through Ezra and Nehemiah, they've been up and down and up and down, haven't they? And that's like us, isn't it? That's like me. (laughs) Up and down and up and down. A little bit higher than massively low. And then a little bit higher than massively low. Where is the hope? Look at verses 30 to 31 at the end. Nehemiah says, Thus... I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. See what's happening here? See, Nehemiah comes along and, and he cleanses them, and he provides for them what they had failed to do. He provides the wood for the offerings, he lays down his wealth for their sake. And even though it wasn't his fault, he took their failure on as his responsibility. Now, does that sound familiar? It should, because what we see in Nehemiah is a foretaste of the greater story of what God is working in and through his people, a story that would ultimately be completed in Jesus. You see, opposition is persistent, our sin is persistent, but God is more persistent and I want us to remember this as we, this week even, and tomorrow even, and this, after, this afternoon even, as we feel the weight of all the temptations, the temptation to give up on God, to neglect His people, to reject holiness, to be selfish with our money, allow the enemy to set up shop in our hearts. As we feel the weight of all these things pulling on us, I want us to remember that God is more persistent. His grace is more persistent. You know, John, who was Jesus, one of Jesus' best friends, writes the Gospel of John, the way he describes his grace, Jesus, God's grace in John chapter 1, it says grace upon grace. It's not like a layering on top of a layering. You know what that is? It's like the waves on the beach over and over and over again. God is renewing work. You stand on the beach and he keeps coming. You see, the the events of Ezra and Nehemiah are the last recorded events in the Old Testament. After this, what we have is is, is songs and proverbs and and, and prophecies. But these events chronologically are the last things that happen. And there's a 400-year gap until the coming of Jesus. And we're meant to bridge that gap. 
All the unfinished hope, all the longing, all the need for renewal, all the need for a permanent resolution to the opposition and sin of the people is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. See, what Nehemiah does for the people of God imperfectly, God would do perfectly through the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. The fulfillment of God's promises, God Himself taken on human form so that He could not just be an even better leader than Nehemiah, although He certainly was that, but so He could pay the once and for all price for our persistent sin, past, present, and future, through his sacrifices, he died on the cross at the hands of, of Roman soldiers. And not only that, he would rise up from the dead on the third day in victory over our persistent enemy. Jesus is the leader that Nehemiah could never be. He is the one who has both given us the victory over our opposition and paid the price for the sin that we persistently struggle with. Opposition is persistent, our sin is persistent, but God's renewing work is even more persistent. The writer of Hebrews knew this, and he speaks of this in Hebrews 12. Uh, someone already prayed this passage this morning in, in, in our prayer time before our gathering. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, by the way, Nehemiah is, is included in that cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and every sin. You see what Nehemiah did? He laid aside every sin and every weight. He literally kicked them out. And sin which clings so closely. I know what it's like to feel that sin clinging closely. It's like that turtle with a plastic wrap around it. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see what's going on here? See, this passage is speaking to Christians. Like, this is written to the redeemed people of God who are running the race, facing the opposition of the enemy, struggling with the sin within. And how do we do this? Look to Jesus. That's it. Look to Jesus. God's renewing work in us is persistent. Look to Jesus. God isn't finished with you yet. You're not a failure well, you are, but you're not a finished case. You know how I know that? Because if God had finished with you, you'd, you'd be in heaven or Jesus would have returned. So the fact that you're still here means he's not finished with you yet, no matter how hopeless you think you are. And so as we live looking forward to the day that Jesus returns, we run the race looking to Jesus. We remember the victory over our enemy he won for us. We remind ourselves and each other that, that he has paid the price for our sin. See, God isn't finished with us yet. This is where the unfinished hope comes in. He hasn't finished with us yet. He is at work in us, renewing us, making us more like his son. And how will we ever become like his son if we're not looking at his son? Barbara loves a jigsaw. So do I. Did a few of them up the caravan. This is, I'm at the stage of my life where I go on holidays and do jigsaws now. <laughs> um, uh, but if you're, if you're trying to do a jigsaw, right, you don't, you don't just tip all the pieces out of the box and then throw the box to one side, right? You don't do that. That's insane. What you do is you keep the picture in front of you. And as you build it, you keep looking at the picture over and over again. And as you go on, what happens is you become more and more familiar with the details in the picture. And it's through continually and persistently looking at the picture on the box that the jigsaw is eventually completed. 
So let's keep looking at Jesus. Look to Jesus. And here's the good news. We have a persistent need for God's renewing work in us. But God has promised to finish that work. Isn't that so cool? Like the jigsaw will be complete. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What God has started in you, he will finish. There's a day coming when opposition will be over, when the, when the struggle with our internal sin will be over. Can you imagine, imagine waking up in the, on one morning in the morning and, and, and having no temptation from Satan? Imagine waking up in the morning and having no struggle in your heart over the same old sin. That's our finish line. That's where we're going. And it will be, we will get there because God said he's doing it in us. This is what God has promised to complete in us, uh, those of us here in Jesus. And, and yes, the opposition's persistent. And yes, our struggle is, with sin is persistent. But you better believe that God is more persistent. And what he has started in you, he will bring to completion. This is our hope. And our hope comes only through the person of Christ. His work on the cross and his ongoing renewing work and sanctifying us. And this is why I want to finish. I just want to draw our attention to, very quickly, Nehemiah's final words in this book. Look at the end of verse 31. It says, remember me, O my God, for good. A prayer that is. Just pray that. Remember me, O my God, for good. It's a simple one. And it's not the first time he's prayed this prayer. Verse 14, he says, remember me, O my God. Verse 22, he says, remember this in my favor, the things he's done. In verse 29, he says, remember them, the people. Four times in this chapter, he asks Yahweh, the God of heaven, to remember. And now listen, when we see the idea of God remembering in Scripture, this is talking about God's intervention. This isn't, God, would you just bring this to mind? This is saying, God, intervene. Remember your people. Remember me. See, Nehemiah's prayer isn't asking God to remember him and think, oh, wow, you did a really good job. It's not about self-justification. Nehemiah is saying, God, would you, would you intervene? I'm relying on you here. He knows that this ongoing, renewed work of God is, in his, is needed in the people and is needed in him, and he knows that it only comes through God's intervention. And if we are to persevere through the persistence of opposition and the persistent struggle with our own sin, then it's through relying on the intervention of God. Being made perfect, being more like Jesus, sanctified. That's what, that's what, we're, that's what we're doing. This is a journey of daily reliance on God's intervention in our lives. And I wonder when the last time was that you asked God to remember you. God, remember me. Intervene in my life. I wonder, do you need to respond to this this morning? Do you need to maybe just repent of some stuff and ask God once again to remember you? Just re-rely on God's intervention in your life to renew you. Do you need a fresh look at Jesus? Because the thing is, asking God to remember you for us is the same as looking to Jesus. We ask God to remember us and God points us to Jesus. We, are, we look to Jesus and we realize that it's through Jesus that God remembers us. Here's the thing. Do you remember the thief on the cross? Remember, I don't know if you ever heard, we'll talk about this maybe on Easter, but you remember that thief on the cross and there's one on either side and one of them mocks him and one of them on the other side says, look, would you shut up? <laughs> Do you know who this is? And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
and he knew that his only hope of salvation was that, that Jesus would remember him, right? And, and so with his dying breath, I mean, this guy's like a murderer and a criminal, and he's on a cross, like there's zero hope. But he knows his only slight hope may be that Jesus remembers him. And Jesus responds and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Listen, Jesus remembered you on the cross. It was for you that he was hanging there. It was for you that he died. He remembered you on the cross so that when you ask God to remember you, God says, look to Jesus. I have remembered you. Do you see how I've remembered you? As he hung on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God so that we ask him to, God remembers us. And maybe you've never looked to Jesus. Maybe you've never in any sincere way Ask God to remember you. Maybe you've heard this message over and over again. I imagine if you're in this room, you've heard this message before, but maybe you've never actually trusted in Jesus. I just urge you to let today be the day. Look to Jesus. See him hanging on the cross. See how God has remembered you and trust him and receive the eternal life that he offers. And before I pray, I just, I just want to take a few moments, us all to take a few moments of silence as, as the band comes back up. For some of you, for some of us to take a fresh look at Jesus today, to say, God, remember me. I'm taking a fresh look at Jesus. I've got all this stuff that's moved into my heart, and I need to get rid of it. I'm looking to you, Jesus. And maybe some of you have never trusted Jesus before, and I just urge you and invite you to pray this prayer of Nehemiah. Remember me, oh my God, for good, and see how he has done that through the person and work of Jesus. Let's take a few moments and then I'll pray. Heavenly <laughs> Father, would you give us a fresh look at Jesus this morning?